Well, good morning, Bell Shoals family. My name is Corey Abney, and I serve as the lead pastor here. So grateful that you are worshiping King Jesus with us here at our Brandon campus today and also online. We welcome those of you who are worshiping with us online here in West Central Florida, across the state and around the country. And uh, we welcome those of you who are connecting with us from places around the world. Some of our missionary families and friends, we're so glad that you're with us today on what is a very special day that kicks off a very special week in the life of our faith family. And so I want to encourage you to uh, carve out uh, just about a half an hour of your time on Friday, this upcoming Friday, Good Friday, to worship with us through our Good Friday feature that will take a very interesting perspective on the events that led up to Good Friday and um, will, will lead us through, no doubt, what is uh, the most special weekend um, for all of us who are followers of Jesus. And so this Good Friday feature is um, uh, driven by our Bell Shoals worship team and creative team. We have um, some incredible music. We have some teaching uh, that, again, is a unique perspective on uh, Good Friday and all that has led up historically to Good Friday and sets up what will be um, a really cool weekend. So that will be on demand on all of our platforms, Facebook, uh, Instagram, YouTube. You can access that. I encourage you to share that on social media and, uh, and, and make sure you take advantage of that. That will be available first thing in the morning on Friday. And of course, it'll be available throughout the day. And then Saturday and Sunday, we have some uh, amazing opportunities for you as well. So our Easter services here at the Brandon campus will be Saturday night at five o'clock and then Sunday morning at 9.30 and 11, our normal Sunday schedule. All three of those services will be the same. And so you can come to uh, any one of those with uh, your families. And then Saturday night at six o'clock, we have our Easter family fun night. And so this is gonna be huge, a huge event, Saturday night at six o'clock. And it really doesn't matter what service you plan to attend, we'd love to have you be a part of Saturday night. So you don't have to just come Saturday at five to be there Saturday at six. Um, we don't have a special screening process or anything like that. So if you plan to be here on Sunday, uh, on Easter morning to worship, Hey, come Saturday night at six, bring somebody with you. It's gonna be awesome. We have a bunch of food trucks will be here. We have some dessert trucks who will be here. We have 25,000 eggs for your children or your grandchildren. That is limited to children, all right? So uh, if some of you want candy, dads, moms, this is a good time to teach your children about taxation, all right? Um, let them go hunt and find, bring back to you. You take a portion, they get the rest because in these 25,000 eggs is legit candy. No weird plastic toys, uh, no stickers, okay? We love candy. And so it's legit candy. Uh, our student ministry did an amazing job. Where are all of our students here today? Come on, represent. Our students filled these 25,000 eggs last week. And uh, so it's gonna be awesome. All throughout our fields on that Saturday evening, we will have those 25,000 eggs. We'll gather all of our children up and our next gen team at some point will release the hounds. And uh, 
they will scatter and we will see how long it takes these uh, awesome kids to collect 25,000 eggs. It's gonna be really, really cool. Great opportunity for you to invite someone with you. That's the idea. And uh, again, you can come to any service, Saturday at five, Sunday at 9.30, Sunday at 11, still be a part of Saturday night. Um, around six o'clock is when we'll get started, okay? So we're gonna have a blast. The weather is gonna be perfect. I'm believing that in Jesus' name, all right? The last time we did this, it rained. And it did not detour some of you, which I appreciate, but it is not gonna rain Saturday night. No wind Saturday night. No hail Saturday night. I feel good about that prediction. We're trusting for a great night, uh, weather-wise and otherwise, and it really is gonna be cool. So great weekend, Good Friday feature available to you anytime on Friday, Saturday night. And then as a part of that, eggs and food trucks and just a lot of fun. Uh, we've got some cool giveaways like Top Golf, Bush Gardens, um, a trip to Hawaii. No, I made that up. Okay. Um, but for real Top Golf, for real Bush Gardens, I can't remember what else. It's, it's just going to be super cool. So uh, make sure you're here this weekend. It's a special weekend. But of course, it's special to us because it's an opportunity for us to celebrate the hope that we have in Christ. You know, it's, man, I mean, it's just going to be, it's going to be so cool. Yeah, yeah, it's going to be so cool to gather together and just reflect on the fact that um, this world is not all there is. You know, we have hope beyond the grave and, and uh, it's just gonna be so special. And, and so today, kind of leading up to this week, we're, we're gonna do something just, just a little bit different today. We're, we're gonna talk about a perspective on Palm Sunday and a perspective on, on this Holy Week that, that really goes all the way back to the beginning of, of Israel's history. Because there's a lot more happening in this week we call Easter week than, than just um, an opportunity to gather as family and an opportunity to focus on the resurrection of Jesus. Listen, there's, there's a lot unfolding throughout human history that culminates in this special week. And it actually goes, like I said, goes back to the very beginning of, of the nation of Israel, to Israel's history. It goes all the way back to the beginning when Moses was leading the children of Israel. He led them out of, of captivity in Egypt. He led them to a place where, where eventually, of course, they would establish themselves as a nation. But in those early years, as they're wandering in the wilderness, God is working in and through them to establish them and to root them in his kindness, in his graciousness, and in his plan and his purpose for them, which wasn't just for them, it was ultimately for the world. Because God raised up this nation we call Israel so that they might be a blessing to all the other nations on the earth. They didn't ultimately exist for themselves. They ultimately existed to bring glory to God by being a blessing to other nations. And so in these early days, God is establishing this nation and he's, he's, he's putting some things together that point us forward to what he will ultimately do through the person and the work of his son. There's a lot happening. And so if you have a copy of God's word today, I want you to go with me to the book of Leviticus, all right? Leviticus. No cheers, no, okay, no claps, okay, well. Come on, how many of y'all, I know some of you got out of bed today and you're like, I can't wait to get a word from Leviticus. Nobody, all right, well, we're gonna go to Leviticus 
And, uh, and if, you're, if you're new to church, if you're, if you're new to, uh, to Bell Shoals, hey, no, no worries. Leviticus is an easy book of the Bible to find. It's the third book of the Bible. Okay, you got Genesis, Exodus, and then Leviticus. You've got um, this, this book early on in Israel's history given to us by Moses. It's gonna walk us through a lot of laws that God gave his people, okay? And, and so it's kind of a, a crazy book in some ways because there's, there's a lot in here that's hard to understand. There are a lot of laws in here that we would deem pretty crazy, right? And we have crazy laws in our day and time, by the way. Do you realize, I looked up some things in just the state of Florida. Do you realize right now in the state of Florida, it's illegal for a woman to fall asleep under the hairdryer at a salon? Ladies, you can get fined for that. Don't do it. Do you realize that right now in the state of Florida, the punishment for horse theft is still listed as death by hanging? <laughs> Some of you thought about stealing a horse today. Don't do it. Don't do it, right? Do you realize in the state of Florida, it's illegal to sing in a swimsuit? I guess because so many of us are bad singers. I don't know. I don't understand that. In Tampa, this is true. In Tampa, there's a law in the books right now that it's illegal to eat cottage cheese after 6 p.m. on Sunday. Now, in my house, it's illegal to eat cottage cheese on any day, all right? Because that stuff is nasty. And so, yes, thank you very much. And so if you eat cottage cheese, you need to get right with the Lord, okay? So that's weird. And then this might be my favorite. This is an actual law still on the books. Nobody, I guess, has corrected it. It's illegal to tie your elephant to a parking meter without paying for the meter. For those of you planning on scooting downtown today, going to Armature Works, gonna tie your elephant to a meter, make sure you pay for that meter, okay? Weird, crazy laws. They're still around today. And um, they're around because I guess no one ever updated them. But you know, when you go to Leviticus, one of the reasons we find this book so hard to understand because there's a lot of weird laws in Leviticus that apply to the people of Israel. But it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to us. Let me give you some, some examples. These are actually in Leviticus. These are laws given to the nation of Israel all the way back in the days of Moses. Check this out. Eating locusts are good, but eating shrimp is bad. Now, I'd rather eat cottage cheese than a locust. But locusts are good, shrimp are bad, Leviticus 11. Okay, talking back to your parents can get you stoned. Not that kind of stone, like dead stone, like dead, okay? Like bad stone, all right? Like that's in Leviticus 20. Um, Leviticus 19 says that Israel was not to wear any clothes of mixed fibers, so some of you might be reading that and you're like, oh no, I'm wearing polyester today and so I'm in sin. No, you're not in sin for wearing polyester, but you could be in sin if you're wearing spandex. Okay, that's kind of a different conversation, all right? That's kind of a weird law. Here's another weird one. If two guys are in a fight, okay? This is Deuteronomy 25. If two guys are in a fight and one guy hits a guy in another sensitive area, he can have his hand cut off. <laughs> I'm not making this up. Some of you are going to Deuteronomy 25 right now. Now, 
of all the rules to govern a nation, like this was a major problem in Israel, <laughs> right? It's, it's in there. So we, we look at some of these laws and we're like, okay, how do we know what applies to us? Certainly not all of these things apply to us. Some of these things seem like pretty over the top. Like it's like we come to a book like Leviticus and it's just, it's a little intimidating because we don't really know which ones to follow. Like some of you are like going to a seafood restaurant, you're eating shrimp, but you're under conviction the whole time. You know, like, let me free you up from that conviction. So let me just kind of start with, as we come to Leviticus, some context of, of why this is so important and what applies to us and what doesn't. Okay, when we come to the law of Israel, okay, Israel is a nation. Remember, Israel was a theocracy. In other words, Israel was led by God himself. They didn't have a king at this time. They didn't have a parliament, okay? They didn't have a Congress. Israel was led by the Lord. And, and at this point in time, Moses was kind of the chief representative for the Lord. And, and Moses is leading the people of God. But there are people raised up by God's grace and mercy. And so there are people very much led by God himself. And therefore God gives them a code of conduct, if you will. And he gives them some laws to govern them that are unique because they are a unique nation. And when we come to a book like Leviticus and we see all these laws, we have to keep three different categories in mind, okay? First of all, there are civil laws. There are civil laws that govern the nation of Israel as a people in a specific period of time who are led by God. These civil laws don't apply to us. We are not national Israel, right? We, we are Floridians in the United States of America in 2022. So the civil laws that apply to the nation of Israel at the time those laws were given do not apply to us. They apply to, to the nation of Israel and they applied only to the nation of Israel, okay? Secondly, there are ceremonial laws. Now, here's where people get confused because the ceremonial laws relate to the worship practices of Israel as a nation, but they do not apply to us. They applied to Israel in the same way that the civil laws applied to Israel, right? They relate to their worship because they were a people set apart for God's glory. The civil laws relate to their, their function in the world in which they live, their society. And so you have both civil and ceremonial, kind of two sides of the same coin. They both apply to Israel. They both apply to only Israel. They both apply to Israel in the context of them being a theocracy governed by the laws that God has given. So the civil and ceremonial laws do not apply to us. That's why we don't make a big deal out of wearing mixed fibers or eating shrimp and these other things. They apply to Israel. But here's the third category we see, the moral laws. There are moral laws given to Israel and these are the only laws given to Israel that currently apply to us. Why? Because moral law relates ultimately to the nature and the character of God. And therefore, anything related to the nature and the character of God applies to all people in all places, in all circumstances, okay? The 10 commandments, for example, are moral laws. Those moral laws apply to us. We still live under the moral law of God that we're not going to murder. We're not going to steal. We're going to honor our parents, okay? The moral law of God applies to us. And there are other moral laws that apply to us that are reiterated throughout Israel's history. Many of them are reiterated in the New Testament and they still apply to us today because they reflect the nature and the character of God. Now, I just set that context in place for you because when we come to Leviticus today, 
We're coming into a section where God is giving some ceremonial laws that do not apply to us today because as we're gonna see, we don't live in the same sacrificial system that Israel lived in. But listen to me very, very carefully. But some of these things have a deeper meaning than just what transpired during the time of Israel. And what's so cool about the nation of Israel's history is that so much of what God did in that nation relates to what he would do for every nation. And so if I could give you like one word to describe why this week is so important to us, why Palm Sunday leading up into Easter Sunday and all the events that transpired in between, why that's such an important week, here's the one word I would give you, fulfillment. Fulfillment. There are a lot of things happening this week historically that point to the grace and the kindness and the mercy of God. God worked in Israel's history in a unique way so that we could see with more clarity his grace and his kindness to us. And what we find in this special week, this holy week, starting today with Palm Sunday, leading up into Easter Sunday, thinking about Good Friday, thinking about all that transpired in the life and ministry of Jesus, okay? One of the things that strikes us is the fact that over time, we're able to look back and see how some of these things in Israel's history and some of these things that happened in the life and the ministry of Israel were happening so that in the life and ministry of Jesus, we would see the connection of God's work of salvation throughout all of human history. In other words, all the way back in the days of Leviticus, when God's giving his law to his people, when God's crafting a situation whereby Israel can worship him, God's doing it in a way that he's literally laying the groundwork for what Jesus is gonna do thousands of years later. That way, here's the hope that we have today. We get to look back on all of these events and see that our salvation is not accidental. Our, our salvation is not just God reacting in the moment to, to, to you know, our sin and our rebellion. I want you to see God so loves you that before you were ever born, he had put a plan of salvation in place so that you could be forgiven of your sin and you could know his grace and mercy. That's how much God loves you. None of this is accidental, right? None of this is coincidental. None of this is like reactionary. Here's what we see throughout Israel's history. Here's what we see this week, fulfillment. We see that all throughout human history, God had a plan in place to save his people. And all along the way, God is dropping hints through the nation of Israel about what he's gonna do for you and me. And one of the big hints he drops is found in the sacrificial system that Israel embraced as a part of their ceremonial laws. And I know this doesn't necessarily get you out of bed in the morning, Leviticus 16 saying, yeah, yeah, buddy. I'm gonna hide this word in my heart. Okay, I know we don't think of the Levitical law in that way, but I promise you, like what we're gonna see today what we're gonna see in terms of this big clue that God placed in Israel's history about what he's gonna do for all of us, I'm telling you, it's life-changing. It's here for a reason and a purpose. And what do we find? Well, we find 
as God is establishing this nation, that they're centered on worship. And it's worship around one central theme, okay? If you're taking notes, write this down. One central theme, atonement. Atonement. This is huge. Everything in Israel's history as it relates to their worship of God is centered around atonement. Now, what is atonement? Well, very simply put, atonement is the action of making amends for a wrong. When someone commits a wrong, someone offends someone else, someone hurts someone else, then in order for restitution to be made, in order for there to be reconciliation, right? Someone has to amend for that wrong. Here's the problem that you and I have with God. In our sin, in our rebellion, in our resistance to his rule and reign, in our desire to reign over ourselves, in our desire to live for ourselves, in our desire to have glory for ourselves, then here's what happened. We have grieved and offended a righteous and a gracious and a holy God. And listen to me very, very carefully. We are unable to make amends on our own. I mean, we are finite, sinful human beings. There is no possible way for us to make atonement before a righteous and an infinite holy God. We fall way short. And so here's what God did for us. God sent someone into the world to make atonement for us, to make amends for us, so that we can have a relationship with God. And years before this means of atonement entered our broken world, God dropped some serious hints and clues about what would happen. They were fulfilled in this holy week, but they were foreshadowed years in advance, right here in Leviticus 16. All right, let's break this down. Go to Leviticus 16, verse one. Look at this. So the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of two of Aaron's sons when they approached the presence of the Lord and they died. And the Lord said to Moses, tell your brother Aaron that he may not come whenever he wants into the holy place behind the curtain in front of the mercy seat on the ark or else he will die too because I appear in the cloud above the mercy seat. Let me just tell you quickly what's happening here. Aaron is, uh, you know, the, 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 the priest over Israel. Moses is the leader of the nation. Here's what happened. Two of Aaron's sons came into the presence of God. Here's how that worked. God had told the people to set up what, what we call a tabernacle. It was just a place of worship. And the tabernacle had a couple of different rooms in it. And the innermost room of the tabernacle was literally a place where they put the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark containing the Ten Commandments, the Ark kind of representing the presence of God. And God literally would descend. He would, he would, he would, um, establish his presence there in that inner room. And so, and so he, Aaron's sons at one point try to walk in there like, like kind of like walking in to hang out with you or me. And they died because listen, as a fallen sinful human being, you try to come into the presence of God, you're gonna die. <laughs> we cannot survive being in the presence of a righteous, holy, all-powerful God as sinful and selfish as we are. They died 
And here's what God's saying here in Leviticus 16. You better tell Aaron, <laughs> like, like if he just wants to stroll into that inner holy place where my presence is without preparing himself, he's gonna die too. And so God says, here's, here's how this is gonna work. I'm gonna set up a, a way for you to worship. And here's, here's how it's gonna work. So check, check this out, verse three. Aaron is to enter the most holy place in this way, with a young bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He's to wear a holy linen tunic and linen undergarments are to be on his body. He is to tie a linen sash around him and wrap his head with a linen turban. These are holy garments, special garments just for this purpose. And he must bathe his body with water before he wears them. I love it. Tell that man, he better take a shower. Before he puts on these holy garments, he better... He better break out the body wash and he better be clean, right? Notice all the symbolism here. You just don't walk into the presence of God unclean, okay? Physically or spiritually. So God's like, you better tell Aaron, take a bath, clean himself up as best he can. He puts on these special holy garments that I regard as holy and then he can come in. Now check this out, right? Uh, verse six, Aaron will present the bull for his sin offering and make atonement for himself and his household. In other words, God's saying his sin needs to be dealt with before he deals with the people's sin. His sin and his family's sin need to be atoned for before he can make atonement for others, right? Verse seven, and next he will take the two goats and he will place them before the Lord at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And after Aaron cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other an uninhabitable place, he is to present the goat chosen by lot for the Lord and sacrifice it as a sin offering. But the goat chosen by lot for an uninhabitable place is to be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement with it by sending it into the wilderness for an uninhabitable place. Now, in other words, here's what's happening. God says, you wanna come into my presence. You wanna worship. You wanna come into my presence. You want your sin forgiven. You wanna come into my presence. You want a relationship with me. Here's how you do it. First of all, you need to tell Aaron as the priestly representative of his people that he needs to be pure and holy because the representative of a sinful people cannot come in a sinful manner before a holy God. His sin needs to be atoned for. And then as he comes to make atonement for the people, it will happen in two ways. One, there'll be a goat that's sacrificed, an animal sacrifice whose blood is shed, and there'll be one that's sent into the wilderness never to return again. Now, this is interesting. You need to keep in mind that these animals to us seem like little farm animals that we could do without. <laughs> to Israel, this was currency. To Israel, there was sacrifice involved. They were taking the best of what they had, which represented value to them, currency for them, and they were having to bring it as a sacrifice. In other words, it cost them something. It cost the people something to have atonement and it cost them their very best. And when these animals came and were brought before the Lord, here's how God instructs Aaron to operate. Go to verse 11. When Aaron presents the bull, God says, for a sin offering and makes atonement for himself and his household, he will slaughter the bull for the sin offering. And then he needs to take the fire pan full of blazing coals from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of finely ground fragrant incense and bring them inside the curtain. He is to put the incense on the fire before the Lord so that the cloud of incense covers the mercy seat that is over the testimony or else he will die. And he is to take some of the bull's blood and sprinkle it with his finger against the east side of the mercy seat and he will sprinkle 
sprinkles some of the blood with his finger before the mercy seat seven times. And when he slaughters the male goat for the people's sin offering and brings its blood inside the curtain, he will do the same with its blood as he did with the bull's blood. He's just sprinkle it against the mercy seat and in front of it. He will make atonement for the most holy place in this way for all of their sins because of the Israelites' impurities and their rebellious acts. He will do the same for the tent of meeting that remains among them because it is surrounded by their impurities and no one may be in the tent of meeting from the time he enters to make atonement in the most holy place until he leaves after he has made atonement for himself, his household, and the whole assembly of Israel. In other words, no one's to be in there. This is a holy offering to the Lord, right? And, and then he will go out to the altar that is before the Lord to make atonement for it. He is to take some of the bull's blood and some of the goat's blood and put it on the horns on all sides of the altar. He is to sprinkle some of the blood on it with its finger, with his finger seven times to cleanse and set it apart from the Israelites' impurities. And when he's finished making atonement for the most holy place, the tent of meeting and the altar, he is to present the live male goat. Now check this out. Aaron will lay both of his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all of Israelites' iniquities and rebellious acts, all of their sins. He is to then put them on the goat's head, symbolically, of course, and send it away into the wilderness by the man appointed for the task. And the goat will carry all their iniquities into a desolate land and the man will release it there. And so here's what's happening. You have the tabernacle. Inside the tabernacle, Aaron's to make sacrifice through the blood of one of those goats for himself and his family. He's then to make atonement through the second goat for the sins of Israel. And he's to take that, that, that other goat, right? And he's, he's to send it off into the wilderness, symbolizing that because of the blood sacrifice that has been made, the iniquities of Israel are sent away so that their guilt and shame are no longer with them. And their guilt and shame are carried off into the wilderness never to return. And in these ways, God says to Moses, I will forgive my people and I will continue to dwell with them. To this end, go go down to verse 29. Actually, God says, this is something that you're gonna do once a year. He says, this is to be a permanent statute for you in the seventh month, on the 10th day of the month, you're to practice self-denial, do no work, both the native and the alien who reside among you. Atonement will be made for you on this day to cleanse you and you will be clean from all of your sins before the Lord. Once a year, God says to Israel, you're gonna do this. Once a year, the bull comes, sacrifice, for Aaron's sin and that of his family. Once a year, this goat without blemish sacrificed for the sins and iniquities of Israel. Once a year, the second goat sent off into the wilderness, symbolizing the fact that their guilt and their shame is no longer with them. And therefore God is pleased with them. Atonement. What is atonement? The action of making amends for a wrong or an injury. God makes it very, very clear that for a people whose sin leads to death, in order for that sin to be atoned for, there has to be another death. It's death for death and life for life. The only way a people whose sin has brought death can have their sin atoned for is through the death of one who is spotless. And once a year, this is what we know as the Day of Atonement or Yom Kippur, this is 
This is something that Israel practiced. They practiced this for many, many years. But you'll notice they didn't practice it forever. Do you know why? Because God eventually gave us a perfect lamb who entered our broken world and shed his blood so that our sins could be forgiven and our guilt and our shame driven away from us, not just once a year, but forever. You see, everything that's happening here in Leviticus, everything that was happening within this this ceremonial structure that God established was not just for Israel. It was for them in that day and that time. It was for them in that season of, of relating to God through a priest. But it was ultimately foreshadowing for us what God would do through our great high priest, who is Jesus. It was ultimately pointing us forward to what God would do in a more profound way through the lamb that he's given to us, who is Jesus. And and so here's the reality. Here's what I want you to see, the key takeaway today, all right? Listen, the atonement, therefore, the atonement that you and I think about, the atonement that you and I talk about, right? The atonement that saves us requires a substitute for us. This is the fulfillment that we look to this week. This is what ultimately this Holy Week is all about. It's about atonement. It's about atonement that saves us. How? Through a substitute that came for us. That's the only way we could have atonement. We can't atone for our own sin. Therefore, we had to have one who was spotless without blemish to atone for it in our place. And how does one atone for sin that brings death? Well, he has to endure death himself in the place of those that he is redeeming. The atonement that saves us requires a substitute for us. And going back to Leviticus even, I know this is several thousand years ago. I know much of these uh, civil and ceremonial laws no longer apply to us, but can I tell you what does, what God's communicating here through them. And, and, and so let me, let me just point out a couple things. First of all, we see here even in Leviticus, in Israel's story, what's true in our story, listen to me, that our sin is worse than we realize. Our sin is way worse than we realize. I don't know how you think of yourself. I'll tell you how I think of myself, right? That I'm not perfect, but I'm pretty good and I'm definitely better than some. Does that sound familiar? Right? Like I've never talked to a person who said, that they're a perfect person. Like I've never met that. I'm sure that person exists. Maybe you're married to that person. I don't know. But like, I've never met a person who said I'm a perfect person. But I've met a lot of people who said, I think I'm a pretty good person. I'm at least better than some, if not better than most. Can, Can I just be super honest with you today? You're better than most is way short of where you need to be in your relationship with a holy and a perfect God. You're way short. You're better than most is not good enough, okay? Here's what it's like. It, it, it's like, like one time, I, this is a true story, I was, I was actually in Haiti with my oldest daughter and, and, um, and we were on a mission team and we were uh, on the ocean. Of one of the places where we served was there on the, on the coast. And uh, I remember we were kind of out one day as a team and, and there, was, there were a few buoys out in the water. And I'll never forget, I said to my daughter and a few others, hey, let's swim out to that buoy. I know we can do it. That buoy was 30, 40 yards out there, 50 yards maybe, I don't know. And I thought, I'm about to show my daughter that I am the second coming of Michael Phelps. I'm about to show her right here, right? And so I start swimming out there against the current and I get about halfway out and I'm like, I don't think I'm gonna make it. 
but my daughter's there and so I'm gonna make it. And I did, I made it. And I got out there and my daughter got out there and we're out there in the ocean. And it just, it just seemed like we were miles off the coast. And I'm looking back and I'm so proud of myself. And then I realized I gotta swim back. <laughs> and somehow we made it back. And I remember thinking like that 30, 40, 50 yards, like I, it felt like I swam forever, right? And then I think of some people who, who, who like do competitions, right? And they swim a couple miles. And I think, man, that's impressive. And then I read an article a while back about a guy who swam the English Channel. 21 miles. I think mean, that's pretty good. And you know, if I were to liken our relationship to God in terms of bridging our sin gap to a swimmer, it's like some of us think, you know what? I think I could make it to that buoy. I think I could get there. Some of us think, nah, no, nah, that, that marker to perfection, that'd be a couple miles. That's doing an Ironman. No, it's like the length of the English Channel, right? Okay, then you, you know what? You look at the English Channel. You know, if you compare the guy who swam 21 miles across the English Channel and you put those 21 miles on a map from the eastern seaboard of the United States to the western coast of Europe, that 21 miles is nothing. And here's what I want you to see. The distance between your sinfulness and God's holiness is the dif- distance between New York in London. And some of you think, if I can just get out to that buoy, I, I, think I, could, I think I'd be okay. And you come to church or you um, listen to Christian music or you have some kind of religious tradition, you think, you know what, I've done enough to get to God. No, no, the distance between you and God is not the distance between you and that buoy. And it's not the distance between you and the English Channel. It's the distance between New York and London. And there are a lot of people in the world today thinking if they just paddle hard enough, they're gonna get there. And some of you might be really good swimmers, but you ain't swimming the Atlantic Ocean. And spiritually speaking, here's what Leviticus reminds us of, okay? You can't cover the gap through your own effort when it comes to your sin and God's holiness. You can kick and paddle all you want. Listen, here's here's the bottom line. The only way to bridge that gap is by anchoring your life to the one who can and the one who did. So our sin is worse than we realize. Our desperate need for God is um, more profound than we realize. We, we can't get to God on our own. Secondly, make a note of this. Check this out. Look, God's grace is greater than we can imagine. Here's what's so cool about what we see here in Leviticus. God working in a powerful way through this sacrificial system so that our sin can be atoned for and we can actually bridge that gap. What does it take for a people whose sin brings death to have atonement? Well, it can only come through the sacrificial death of another who is righteous and holy and able to take the wrath of God in the place of those who need it. And that's exactly what Jesus has done for us. Listen, I want you to know that your sin is way worse than you realize. My sin, way worse than I realize. We're in desperate need, okay? We can never get to God on our own. But here's the good news. God has made a way of salvation for us. 
He's brought a lamb into the world. Jesus said, behold, right? He, he, he is the, the one who reveals the glory of God to us. He is the son of God, right? What did John say about Jesus? Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We have a perfect lamb who's come to shed his blood for us so that by God's grace and provision, we can have a relationship with him. That's the only way. You gotta be covered by the blood. And not only in Leviticus do we have this beautiful picture of what Jesus would do through shedding his own blood for us, but we also have a picture of how through Jesus, God removes our guilt and shame through the scapegoat, right? And, and what does Jesus do? What does God tell us is gonna happen through the salvation of Jesus? Not only is our sin atoned for and are we made right with a holy God through the sacrifice of Jesus, but our guilt and our shame no longer follow us because God has sent it away and it's never coming back. Isn't that good news? Just like that scapegoat takes the guilt and shame of Israel off into the wilderness. Listen, this, this is what God does for his people. He removes the guilt of our sin far away from us so that it never comes back. Here's what that means. When, when you ask God into your life through Jesus, when you confess your sin, when you ask him to save you, when you ask him to come into your life, when you commit your life to him, here's what happens. Not only does the blood of Jesus cover your sin, atone for your sin, not only does the righteousness of Jesus cover you, but the guilt and the shame of your sin is sent away, never to return, so that God always looks at you as a son or a daughter with whom he is well pleased. He's well pleased with you. Man, great news. He's always well pleased with you. Why? Because you're covered with the righteousness of Jesus. I'm talking positionally. I'm, I, I, I'm talking in terms of you're standing before God, right? I mean, we can all mess up and God can, as a, as a loving father, you know, discipline us back toward obedience. I'm talking about positionally. Where are you in terms of your relationship with God? 100% of the time, you are fully loved, fully accepted, no guilt, no shame. Because the blood of Jesus has atoned for your sin and he's taken your guilt and your shame and he's driven it far away into the wilderness. What does Psalm 103 tell us? I mean, listen to the echoes of Leviticus 16. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. And as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. That's Leviticus 16. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. You see, our sin is way worse than we realize, but God's grace is way greater than we can ever imagine. And therefore, here's, here's what gets us to, uh, to Easter week, right? All of these things are true because Jesus' blood is sufficient to save. And we have a sacrifice that God has given us once for all. We don't have to have sacrifices year after year after year. We don't have living in our day and time, the blood of an animal to atone for our sin, we have the blood of God's son. Once for all, what did Jesus say? It is finished. And if you're here today, if you're watching with us online today and you've never put yourself under the blood of Jesus for salvation, I urge you to do it today. Just to agree with God, God, I'm a sinner. God, I, I know I'm in desperate need of your grace 
And I believe that Jesus lived. I believe that he died and I believe he rose from the dead. And I'm asking you through the ministry of Jesus to forgive me, to atone for my sin and to welcome me as a son or a daughter. And here's the good news. God will save every single person who calls out to him. Through the blood of Jesus, the atoning power of Jesus, that's the only way. Religion can't save you. Paddling as hard as you can through good works can't save you. Dear friend, only the blood of Jesus can save you. And thousands of years ago, God put in place a sacrificial system that was not an end of itself. It was to point us forward to the one who would come to be a sacrifice for us. And that's what we celebrate today. That's what we celebrate on Friday. Fulfillment, it is finished. God has done all that's required to atone for our sin, to make it right. Death for death, life for life. God has separated our guilt and shame from us. It's never coming back. He loves you and he's pleased with you because you're his son, you're his daughter. That gives you meaning and purpose in life. It gives you assurance in difficult days and times. And it gives us hope, does it not, that one day, if the Lord delays his return further, that our death on this earth is not death at all. It's simply a transfer to the glorious reality of eternal life. That's the hope that we have. Because you and I and all who trust in Jesus are covered by the blood. We are a people of the blood. We are a people who, as the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 10, whose hearts have been sprinkled clean. Let me wrap up with this. Check this out. Here's what the author of Hebrews says, chapter 10 and verse 19. Notice the fulfillment here from Leviticus 16. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus, now we come in to the Holy of Holies. How? Through the blood of Jesus. He has inaugurated for us a new and a living way through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. And let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering since he who promised is faithful. And let us watch out for one another to provoke love and good works, not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other and all the more as you see the day of Christ's return approaching. We are a people whose hearts have been sprinkled clean by the blood. We are a people whose guilt and shame has been separated from us as far as the East is from the West. We are a people who are now brothers and sisters united together under one name for one fame because of the blood of Christ. That is our hope. That's our hope. Atonement, fulfillment. We are a people of the blood.